Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a better place. As you can tell from our tagline, we're a pretty upbeat show, focusing on the good being enabled by emerging technologies. It's not that tech doesn't have downsides. If you listen to this show, you hear us talk about the potential pitfalls of emerging technology, uh, the ways it's responsible for social disruption, government corporate misuse, and a litany of different ways that tech can go sour. But what I find increasingly commonplace today is a cottage industry of technophobic doom and gloom obsessives, a kind of species of moral entrepreneurs who build their careers by fixating on the potential pitfalls of innovation while failing to properly appreciate the upsides of technological disruption. I was recently speaking at a conference for college-age libertarians and conservatives, and I was struck by how speaker after speaker called for government regulation of big tech and the internet. Any allegation of anti-conservative bias by the speakers, you know, uh, from companies like Google or Facebook, it was met with the jeers and cheers of the crowd. It was really a telling moment. It showed to me that the surge of anti-tech backlash is coming from both sides of the political spectrum, and it's winning the hearts and minds of even folks who ostensibly ascribe to principles of limited government, private property rights, and free markets, all principles that would be violated by creating some kind of government speech police to patrol the internet. We are facing a groundswell of bipartisan support for government regulation of the internet, unlike anything we've seen in the past two decades, and it's really been accelerating over the past six months. And I think as a podcast, that means that Building Tomorrow has to get down the brass tacks and examine some of the basic protections and liberties that made the internet this enormous engine of technological innovation, global communication, and economic prosperity that made the internet possible. And no single decision is more important to the rise of the internet than these two little sentences in a mostly defunct law from the 1990s called the Communications Decency Act. I mean, it's kind of an inauspicious start. Even at the time, nobody realized quite how important these two sentences would become. You've probably heard them referenced before. We talk about them on the show frequently. They are known as Section 230. Without them, the development of the internet would have been radically different. But before we talk about the specifics of Section 230, how it shaped the internet, uh, let's start with a little history lesson about the moral and technological panics of the 1990s. That's the moment that birthed both Section 230, the law that amended, and really the internet as we know it today. In the mid-1990s, we're at the tail end of this decade-long bipartisan culture war waged by groups that called themselves family values organizations. That was commonly the phrase family values. And their goal was to restrict, um, quote unquote, indecent content from reaching children's eyes or ears. Uh, This is coming out of the cultural revolutions of the 60s and 70s, the rise of rock and roll music, drug use, and that kind of thing. There was this idea that this kind of cultural libertinism was leading the youth astray into lives of crime and uh, deviancy and dissolution. Now, perhaps the most famous moment in this culture war backlash uh, in regards to what children could see or hear were the 1985 congressional hearings with Tipper Gore, 
This was uh, Al Gore's wife, meaning that his wife, uh, Tipper, had real influence, the ability to get a congressional investigation called. And uh, Tipper Gore and a variety of other uh, spouses of government officials created what was called the Parents Music Resource Center and held these congressional hearings about 15 groups. They called them the Filthy 15. So points for alliteration. Groups like ACDC, Black Sabbath, Madonna, Twisted Sister. What they said was these groups were peddling just indecency, obscenity, their swearing, the referencing sexual acts in their music. It's bad for the children. They're targeting all these famous musicians. These are the most popular musicians of their day and saying what they are doing should be shut down by the government to protect the children. Now, there was musician pushback. Uh, rock legend Frank Zappa said, quote, if it looks like censorship and smells like censorship, it is censorship, no matter whose wife is talking about it. John Denver testified. He compared this, the hearings, to like a Nazi book burning. So there was real pushback from a, a variety of, of major artists, which prevented, I think, the government from acting on the hearings. But the hearings themselves were kind of implicit threat that if the music industry didn't do something, the government would do it for them. And so it was out of this moment that the music industry agreed to self-regulation. This is where those little parental advisory explicit lyrics, they're very recognizable. It's like black and white label that go on CD covers. Though as D. Snyder of Twisted Sister said, well, look, these labels are badges of honor. I mean, our fans love knowing that this has a parental advisory sticker because it tells them which CDs they should want to purchase. So there was a certain amount of backlash in the 1990s. Uh, This was a real moment of moral panic across all of American culture. The idea that uh, new technologies were going to twist the brains of children in ways that could not be remediated. They were permanently affected for ill by new technologies enabling new forms of, of culture. And it's in that moment that the internet arrives on the scene in at least consumer access to the internet. Technology itself is older, but it's in the early 90s that folks are starting to go online in real numbers. And so all the same family scolds worried about music and movies and violent video games are worried about the potential for indecency and obscenity online. And the question was this. Should the Federal Communications Commission, which regulated out obscenity and indecency for radio and television broadcasting, I mean, these are the ones who, uh, it's the FCC who who said that network television couldn't show nudity or, or certain swear words or violence during primetime television when kids were uh, ostensibly awake. Should those same rules and that the government, you know, should the FCC regulate the internet? Should they apply those kind of bans on obscenity and decency to protect the kids online. I mean, good luck with that. I mean, it it seems um, quaint from uh, a contemporary perspective, the idea to keep people from swearing and being indecent online. But that was the intent behind the Communications Decency Act of 1996. The purpose of this law was to make it a criminal offense to share online pornography or other obscene or indecent material with anyone under the age of 18. Uh, One of the relics of this law is uh, like a lot of adult content will be gated with a little click button. Do you accept or decline that you are above or below the age of 18? That's a relic of this law, but it's impossible to enforce. It's kind of a meaningless artifact of what's left from the Communications Decency Act. 
Now, what counted as obscene or indecent was always ill-defined. I mean, under the strictest interpretation, most of the content that you stream, that you consume online from YouTube to you know popular TV shows, Netflix's Big Mouth or HBO's Game of Thrones, all of that would have fallen afoul of the rules unless HBO, Netflix, YouTube could have guaranteed that no minor, no person below the age of 18 could access their content. I mean, that's impossible. It's it's not really a reasonable standard. They would have been liable uh, for any case of a kid accessing their content online, according to the terms of the CBA of 1996. Now, First Amendment advocates thankfully rallied um, against this law. They challenged it in the courts, and the court struck most of it down. The court said, look, indecency is in the eyes of the beholder. And given that that gray area, it should be parents who decide what they want their kids to see. It's up to parents using, you know, they can use internet filters. They can use, restrict their kids' access in various ways. They should do that on a case-by-case basis, not a one-size-fits-all government rule. I mean, and I get this. I grew up in a very conservative, fundamentalist Christian community. And, And let me tell you, you wouldn't want those folks to have the power to decide a blanket government enforced rule for what internet content counted as indecent and what doesn't. I mean, I, I wasn't allowed to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because it encouraged rebellion and violence. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want that standard uh, for the internet, no matter how much better the world would have been if Michael Bay had been barred from making those awful Turtles reboot movies. I think we can agree that the government shouldn't be telling us what terrible Bay movies we should or should not watch. But only one of the pieces of the law survived these court challenges. Um, most of it got struck down. The government said, look, your standards are too vague. This is not a legitimate government power. It's it's unconstitutional. The one bit that survived, ironically, was Section 230, the operative bit of which is just two little sentences. 230 was not part of the original bill. It's an amendment that was added by uh, Christopher Cox, Ron Wyden, to congressional representatives. What they worried, they worried that the law, as written, unamended, would have violated the First Amendment. And they're not wrong, as, as the courts found. Wyden warned, quote, of an army of censors that would spoil a lot of the net's promise. So the irony is that this problem bill was invalidated. But the protection, Section 230, was sustained. And what that meant was uh, the bill, the net effect of all of this legislating, all of this action, these hearings, was to carve out a significant new freedom for the internet, uh, granting them the kind of protection against uh, moral scolds that the music, video game, and movie industry did not have. To discuss how significant Section 230 was for the creation of the internet, probably Matthew Feeney, Cato's Director of Emerging Technology. So Matthew, what do you see as the ramifications of Section 230? Well, Section 230, which is, uh, as you mentioned, getting a lot of play recently, is a is has a few parts to it. Uh, I think the the most important part of it that that people like to to cite often is uh, Section C1, which uh, the important provision there is that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Mm, okay, what's that mean? So. Uh, something that that people have uh, been sus- discussing a lot recently uh, when it comes to social media sites, uh, but it's important to point out that uh, this this of course doesn't just apply to big tech; it applies to uh, basically any any website that uh, allows for users to contribute content, whether that's a comment section or a posting, uh, a review, anything anything like that. 
the the important part of it, though, uh, the, the crucial part of that particular section is that uh, the the website itself or the owners of the website, like Facebook or Twitter, for example, won't be considered the actual publisher of whatever the content is, which is important because a lot of uh, the content could potentially be uh, be content that you could be civilly liable for mm. or potentially even criminal. Uh, so whether you defame someone, you, you, you libel someone if you posted uh, child pornography, uh, illegal content. And the I, I think part of the interesting part of the, the history of 230 are the court cases before it that really, uh, I think, uh, highlight why it was so important that that it passed. You had a case, for example, in 1991, the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of New York uh, decided a case called Cubby versus CompuServe, and there you had this interesting case uh, where the court decided that CompuServe was a distributor rather than a publisher uh, of content that were on the forums. Uh, but it said uh, the the court interestingly said that uh, CompuServe could potentially maybe be held liable for defamatory content um, if it knew about it, right? If, uh, oh, okay. So it said you couldn't be held liable for defamation, uh, but if you actually knew about it, then maybe you could, which sort of implies that that a hands off approach is best, right? That to to avoid liability, CompuServe should should just not moderate, should just keep its hands off. So let me put this in brass tacks. So let's say uh, to use a contemporary comparison. Uh, and something that's not just social media. So let's say Yelp. You're Yelp. You go on onto Yelp to review a, a, a restaurant. In a world in which Yelp is liable for all the content you upload, and, and basically all their content is user reviews of restaurants and things, let's say I, I go to the restaurant and I say something bad about the restaurant. I give it a single star. I complain about how rude the wait staff was and et cetera. That restaurant doesn't appreciate it and accuses me of libeling or defaming, I always forget the difference, but of of some sort of uh, misrepresentation of them and wants to sue me. Now, that, that's something that has to be decided in court. But once upon a time, prior to Section 230, they could have sued Yelp for hosting my review that they claim is libelous or defamatory, mm-hmm. right? But what you're pointing out here with the CompuServe case is that here the court says – and we'll use Yelp here for CompuServe. Well, you can't. You can sue Yelp if Yelp knew that your review was defamatory or libelous and didn't remove it. But if they didn't know, if they don't do any kind of moderation of any of the content, then then you can't sue them. And that that creates a perverse incentive, right? Well, I think. If you're on, uh, if you're someone who uses the internet, then you, you don't want to live in a world of of the CompuServe case, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, it turns out that people actually like content moderation to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you, but the the interesting thing about uh, the CompuServe case is it's followed a few years later by this uh, uh, Stratton Oakmont v. Prodigy case, which is in '95. Stratton uh, Oakmont. That's the um, movie Wolf of Wall Street. The Wolf right? of Wall Street guy. Yes. So any of you who've known. Uh, <laughs> The, the DiCaprio film, Martin Scorsese, this case does not get a mention in the film, but <laughs> it should. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, this, this was an interesting case, which was heard by the New York Supreme Court, where someone anonymously posted on a prodigy forum uh, saying that this company was engaging in fraudulent activities. Yeah, and they were. Which, yeah, uh, <laughs> but and, and what, what's, what's interesting about this case, though, is that it comes the, – the New York Supreme Court came to a bit of a different conclusion than the Southern District in CompuServe where they, they actually said that uh, providers could be held liable for user speech uh, and that actually Prodigy is a publisher 
because it engages in certain activities. Namely, it posts a uh, a guideline for users. It had software that screened it, screened out certain offensive material, uh, and that was the the holding of uh, the New York Supreme Court, which also doesn't sound great because you, so. We, before Section 230 passes in 96, you have CompuServe and Prodigy, these these two cases. Uh, one is saying, well, you're not liable if you just have a totally hands-off approach. And another is saying, if you have content moderation policies, it seems like of any kind, you could be held liable. Ooh. And this is... Uh, and this is the the problem that uh, the authors of 230 are trying to fix, which is the crucial bit that I read earlier, which says, again, Section 230C1, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker. So that's, that's an important part. But I want to also highlight that um, Section C12A uh, of it is, is another important part that protects uh, you, protects companies uh who to engage in content moderation uh, specifically it says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of and then it goes on any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene lewd uh lascivious filthy excessively violent harassing or importantly otherwise objectionable whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Uh, and this is a really crucial piece of the, the legislation here. It's saying, look, number one, if you're an interactive uh, computer service, you are not liable for content that uses posts. So that's, that's a good protection. And the other is, oh, and by the way, you, ba- you, you can do whatever you want to get rid of material that your company finds offensive. Uh, and it's not, I think, uh, I think an exaggeration to say th- this is a uh, this legislation allows the internet as we know it uh, to exist because so much of the internet now relies on uh, websites hosting uh, other people's content, whether that's Facebook or Twitter, the big ones, uh, but YouTube, of course, uh, Airbnb, uh, any website that deals with online dating, I mean, you, you, the internet as we know it. Uh, it's not a complete uh, – it's not complete immunity though. There are carve-outs. So it doesn't protect uh, against, for example, copyright infringement. Uh, so – uh, YouTube has a strong incentive, uh, even after 2.30, to make sure that people don't just upload entire films onto their YouTube channels. Right. And uh, this has uh, become a focus of uh, recent political debates in large part because of uh, accusations of censorship and so forth. Well, now, as, as far as why this is so significant, and I, I agree completely, it's that as much as people complain about the particular content moderation decisions of internet companies, we've been talking a lot about content moderation in these episodes because it's it's a very important it's a very important trend right now in the in the tech industry is is if we don't fix this, the the cultural and political backlash could destroy the internet. So it's a very very important topic right now, but. It's a reminder that this current debate over exactly how we moderate content uh, is healthy compared to what might have been. Because in the world without Section 230 or Section 230-like protections, the internet would look a whole lot more. There would probably be something called the internet or something related. But you'd have – rather than having – Big websites that that have large audiences that kind of try to do some moderation, 
but don't control things too much, you'd end up with a series of tightly walled gardens with very homogenous communities, very heavily regulated, probably smaller user bases because they might not even be able to be free um, because you have to pay for that moderation, that tight moderation somehow. Um, So you wouldn't have the size, the network effects from things like Facebook and Twitter likely. Um, or everything else would be just free for all. Well, it would be 8chan. 4chan, 8chan would be the dominant expression of, you know. Well, that, that certainly was, I think, uh, absent 230. It's impossible to do a historical counterfactual, of course. But it would have been interesting to see in an alternate universe whether uh, eventually the courts would have had to figure out whether the CompuServe or, or Prodigy standard would have been the best one, right? And yeah. uh, one is – uh, the CompuServe is basically 4chan and Gab, which where <laughs> yeah. company not that that would have been the design, but companies that would have been the result because companies would have had an incentive. Hey, if we don't moderate, we can't be held liable. So yeah. anything goes and anything that's First Amendment protected is on the platform, uh, which suggests, I imagine, a kind of environment that most people wouldn't find appealing. No, no, uh, yeah. But the other is if if Prodigy wins out, if that sort of standard emerged absent 230, you would have a very boring internet because uh, websites would have to take an approach, well, look, the courts are going to consider us liable because we have content moderation guidelines. So what we should do is make sure that every single piece of content, every photo, every comment, every essay, every posting is screened beforehand. Doesn't have a uh, hint of possible exposure to any kind of liability. liability right. And yeah. this is like overcorrection on both sides uh and yeah. but neither of those are particularly desirable no, right and no, yeah. and the the worry though is uh that uh, at least sitting from from my perspective right is that uh, th- this kind of uh important legislation is is under uh, attack at the moment and and it's important to point out that it can uh section 230 is important uh, and, but we shouldn't uh deny the fact that it can lead to uh undesirable outcomes, especially for people on the receiving end of of harassment. Uh, one of the most important uh, cases shortly after 230 passed was uh, Zeran versus AOL, where someone anonymously on AOL on an AOL forum, uh, I think used by militias, uh, in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing was like posting offensive t-shirts about how great the bombing was and putting uh, this guy's phone number as the oh, contact detail. So the early doxing. Right. And it was, uh, but this guy had nothing to do with the creation of the t-shirts. It was just a random phone number that had been thrown up ah. there. And he was receiving like angry, understandably furious phone calls constantly to the point where she had to just unplug the phone. Uh, but actually the the first uh, federal circuit court that held this, uh, that heard this this case uh, said, well, you know what? 230 protects AOL here. You know, you, you, you can't sue AOL uh, even though it you know hosted the, the content. Uh, but I, I think we shouldn't – in discussions about this piece of legislation, I think it's important to highlight uh, – how to put it? Pervasive myths about it uh, mm. because I think they're mm-hmm. unhelpful. Uh, one is uh, the important uh, – well, it's not important. The widespread, uh, the widespread myth that Section 230 creates this publisher versus platform distinction. So what does that uh, mean, this publisher platform? Well, you, you'll yeah. find this a lot whenever you have, uh, especially debates on, ironically enough, social media. You'll have people who jump into the comment section saying, no, 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 uh, this is uh, Facebook and Twitter. They're acting like publishers, not platforms. That's really, really important. This is, uh, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, this is... 
uh, this is a legal fantasy. Uh, there isn't a distinction in 230 between publishers and platforms. The, because All it says is publisher. Sorry? All it says is publisher in, in 230. Well, right? it says publisher but also discusses interactive computer services. And when people think of publisher, they might think of something like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And it's true. If, if you wrote an op-ed that uh, libeled me or, or defamatory content, I could – if it was an op-ed, I could sue not only just you, but also the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, but it's silly in the 21st century to think of the New York Times as, uh, for for 230 purposes, to think of it as a, a publisher or purely a publisher because the New York Times also has a comment section. So yeah. the New York Times comment section is exactly the kind of interactive computer service that Section 230 discusses. Uh, and the New York Times, like Facebook, uh, needs – a certain liability protection in order for its comment section to be remotely interesting or of value to its subscribers or users. Uh, And that's – despite the fact that I think this is rather clear to anyone who actually reads the legislation, this is a a pervasive myth that there's an important legal distinction for 230 purposes when it comes to so-called platforms and publishers. Another myth is that uh, 230 was was passed or is uh, contingent on political neutrality. And I think that the history you did a really good job of outlining really shows that this is um, what wasn't part of the, the debate, actually. Uh, nonetheless, what you'll see is uh, senators such as Senator Cruz, who has held uh, and participated in numerous hearings about social media alleged censorship, has quoted uh, the, the findings from Section 230. Uh, one of the findings is, quote, the internet and other interactive computer services offer a forum for a true divi- diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development, and myriad avenues for intellectual activity. You'll always see, if you see Senator Cruz at these hearings, he'll ask Jack Dorsey, Zuckerberg, uh, Google representatives, do you consider your to be a politically uh, neutral forum. As if the answer to that question means anything, really. All, all, all Section 230 here is saying is it's a finding. It's not. It's saying, look, you know, the internet and other uh, interactive computer services are an interesting forum for diversity of political views. There's nothing in the legislation that says you lose this liability protection if you aren't politically neutral. Uh, nonetheless, despite being a Princeton-Harvard-educated lawyer who was the Solicitor General of Texas and someone who has argued cases before the Supreme Court, yeah. <laughs> uh, he continues uh, – and allies continue to uh, say incorrectly that in order to enjoy 230 protection, interactive computer services have to uh, demonstrate political neutrality. I see this as – I mean there is a political utility or partisan utility I suppose to this this line of argumentation. Um, you know, th- there have been decades worth of work. I study the rise of the new right in the 60s and 70s, and it's been going on since since then easily. Decades of work to encourage conservative audiences to distrust the mainstream media. I'm doing air quotes around mainstream because that's a ill-defined concept, what counts as mainstream, what doesn't. But to distrust the media as an institution as kind of, you know, people used to think of it as like the fourth branch of, go- of government in the sense a check on government abuse. Um, and some of those complaints are legitimate. And this is not the place for that for that conversation. Um, but I see this as an extension of that. That was a politically useful rhetoric. Don't trust what these liberals and Democrats in the mainstream media are telling you. Turn instead to conservative alternatives like talk radio and, and eventually Fox News and the like. You can get the utility there. They'll give you the truth, the conservative truth 
And whether or not that's true is it doesn't matter at this point for this conversation. Um, but you can see the utility now shifting from radio and television. We have an alternative, don't trust the main outlets, to now the internet. Uh, don't trust, so it's a new set of similar institutions, social media versus traditional media, uh, digital versus uh, you know radio spectrum. But it can, I think there's the potential over the next couple of decades, or at least in the coming years, for it to serve a similar kind of partisan utility as a way for conservative politicians to rouse their base distrust these big media institutions. Well, I think what you're seeing here is uh, another example of a a uh, persecution complex that seems to be a necessary component of American conservatism, right? And at the moment, it's like you outlined, it's it's Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is, it's a bunch of lefties who live in the Bay Area and they hate conservatives and they're engaged in a concerted effort to make sure that uh, Trump fans don't have a voice on the internet. I find the evidence of this actually lacking. Uh, and uh, I What's interesting is this This goes back and forth. You'll find plenty of uh, left-wing complaints about social media content moderation as well. Uh, despite the fact that I think that the evidence for this kind of con- uh, censorship campaign is uh, is lacking, uh, conservative politicians are running with it. Uh, now, it might just be good politics. I, you, yeah. You've just outlined a compelling cases to – uh, why this is important to the conservative movement and uh, whether or not it's uh, a legal fantasy to say the things that Senator Cruz has. He no doubt actually saying it to people who have real jobs and don't have the time and inclination to research this stuff, uh, find the narrative compelling and will uh, be more likely to support candidates who use this kind of rhetoric. Uh, Senator Cruz is one. Uh, Senator Hawley from Missouri is is another. But I think we should expect more of this as uh, the Republican Party seems to increasingly embrace this kind of uh, anti-quote coastal elite uh, populism. The um, You mentioned Senator uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri, who is the youngest uh, senator in, in the Senate. Um, it's going to be around for a while. And I think represents – he just spoke at the, the National Conservatism Conference – there is a there is an uh, uh, who knows what the history you know how history will look back at the next decade, uh, so that's imponderable. But there is a an arguable case where the future of of the political right is much more represented by voices like Josh Hawley's that he might run for president someday and the like. Um, and so it's a this it implies this is not just of the moment. This is going to be a continuing issue. This kind of skepticism about. Big Tech and 230 in particular. And actually, Hawley himself proposed a piece of legislation. Um, it didn't go anywhere in D.C., but I think it's, it shows how the Overton window is starting to shift when it comes to tech. Like once upon a time, there was a broad bipartisan consensus that the Internet is good. Silicon Valley is doing good, useful work. And both Democrats and Republicans basically kind of protected the Internet from calls for regulation. Um Right. There's a bit of a consensus and that's starting to break down on both sides for different reasons, sometimes overlapping reasons. But Hawley's proposal uh, was to give – the way he put it was, uh, quote, with Section 230, tech companies get a sweetheart deal that no other industry enjoys, complete exemption from traditional publisher liability in exchange for providing a forum free of political censorship. So it's your point about, you know, this neutrality kind of standard um, and – there's Notice this, that he's also calling them a publishers, publisher right? versus platform <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of thing going on there. So this is inaccurate, but he used that argument to call for giving the federal, uh, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, the power to certify or license online platforms 
um, that prove themselves and the burden of proof would be on companies to show, look, we're being neutral in our content, which is a breathtaking uh, extension of government regulation of of speech. It is. And it's also uh, directly aimed at what people today call big tech. It is limited to uh, companies that I think have a minimum of 300 million users. Uh, and uh, also, I think there's also a, uh, a revenue requirement. I think it's half a billion dollars or something like that. I could be wrong. But my, my, my only point is that it's uh, directly aimed at the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. And it's very, very concerning. I think people should really consider what the implications of this kind of legislation are. It's that a private company would have to demonstrate to federal bureaucrats that they are being politically neutral in order to get a certification that they are allowed to function. Yeah. And like you said, this is – people don't appreciate enough, I think, especially in this town, that what, what happened in Silicon Valley over the last couple of decades is rivaled only by really the, the movable type printing press yeah, in yeah. Uh, Europe a couple hundred years ago. Uh, Insofar as it's a revolution in uh, the ability of people to express themselves, to explore new ideas, to publish things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems as if in the name of some kind of uh, national conservative populism that I don't really understand, that, that <laughs> this should be somewhat stifled. That yeah. uh, actually the burden should be on a private company to demonstrate to bureaucrats that they yeah. uh, are politically neutral, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, and, and I think I'm not being flippant when I say that. I think, well, what does uh, true political neutrality imply or look mm-hmm. like? What If you're Google, how would you even prove that? Yeah. I, I don't – and, and uh, especially, I haven't seen any good explanation of what Google looks like in this holy world mm. where it's had to demonstrate to the FTC that it, it's politically neutral. Well. And yeah. the cautionary tale, too, with this proposal is, I mean, folks immediately um, in the kind of D.C. area started calling it a fairness doctrine for the Internet. Mm. And as someone who's written about the fair, the actual fairness doctrine for radio and television broadcasting, that is what it is. And the same thing was true with the fairness doctrine. It was ill-defined. It was well-intentioned. It was like we want radio and television broadcasting to be fair, to be equitable, to represent both conservatives and liberals who could be against fairness, you know? Well, right. Uh, and, but what it ended up being used to do was it was responsible for the most successful government censorship campaign in the last half century. It was – the fairness auction was used to shut down right-wing broadcasters because what counts as fair is in the eye of a bunch of bureaucratic beholders and – he who appoints the bureaucratic beholders gets a lot of power over what uh, over fairness doctrine enforcement, and they use it to shut down, ironically, the ideological ancestors of the conservatives currently making the argument for a fairness doctrine for the internet. Right, it's just <laughs> bizarrely, no, and people should consider what exactly uh, this would this would look like uh, if 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 Google had to demonstrate political neutrality, would they have to demonstrate that when someone Google's the Sandy Hook massacre, that Alex Jones's allegations that this is all a total hoax Both and that sides. these people yeah. – right, and that, that this is all actors and part of a gun control, gun grab. Uh, should that appear just below Wikipedia mm-hmm. or Reuters, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal? I mean, this or, is yeah. like – or even uh, a website that hosts the uh, reports about the uh, the atrocity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that. If, if these are the serious questions that people sitting at Google would have to consider in Holly's world, or when the White House a few a few uh, I think last year did a, um, they were it, it encouraging people to send in complaints about anti conservative bias to a to a White House uh, website. 
but one of the proofs that the White House gave that there is an anti-conservative bias uh, in the online online uh, news uh, among online news outlets was that the number of articles that were critical of Trump during the election was larger than the number of articles that were critical of Hillary Clinton. Um, maybe just entertain the possibility, and it, the same argument probably could be made that entertain the possibility that that you have a you have a situation where. Uh, the idea of neutrality means there need to be an equal number of good and bad things you say about someone. You can imagine the trouble you get into when it's like, well, maybe there's more bad articles about a candidate because that candidate's less popular or did some bad things that are newsworthy well, or, you know. <laughs> right. People should should make sure not to confuse being unbiased with being objective yeah. in the sense that to draw another example, if you Google uh, flat earth theory – Right, you're going to find a lot more articles refuting it than, yeah, <laughs> than right, right. arguing in favor of it. And is that not neutral? <laughs> right, but is that a demonstration of quote like bias? It, it's not necessarily like Google has a uh, you know invested interest no, in no. in the Earth being round. They're reflecting it's, they're public ref- opinion. Well, they're, they're yeah, reflecting they're what people yeah. believe in the world, uh, and and yeah, all of what we said in the last few minutes, I think, just um, compounds the fact that this would be a almost impossible standard to to reach. So what's our uh, our response to these kind of criticisms? Like what what do we say? I mean, something we were talking about uh, before, Matthew, was there are – I mean, there are alternatives. It's not like people are locked into Facebook or Twitter or any of these outlets. Why does that matter? It matters because competition is preferable to anything we've just discussed as far as the Holy Proposal uh, and uh, other proposals to treat social media companies as publishers. The the first thing I would say to conservatives listening who believe that there is this concerted anti-conservative uh, campaign in Silicon Valley is to, uh, yeah, I beseech you to cons- look at the evidence uh, that this is, uh, all the evidence I've seen of this is based on anecdote, misunderstanding of how these uh, algorithms function, misunderstandings of how the companies function, and also ignore a bit of history, namely that uh, left-wingers have had similar concerns in the past about alleged bias. Uh, If that's not convincing, though, if you believe it, then uh, exit is always your right, that there is the ability to start uh, alternatives. Uh, Nothing is stopping people who want to have websites that house conservative speech. Now, some people might argue that uh, these companies are uh, monopolies and that competition is impossible. Uh, maybe that's a topic for another podcast, but I would ju- I just don't buy that. Yeah. Uh, our colleague Ryan Bourne has written quite a bit about big tech monopoly concerns. I, I, I I'm not convinced that it's impossible to compete. The there are alternatives, yeah. even if they are smaller, right? There, there are alternatives. You can use DuckDuckGo instead of Google. You or... can use DuckDuckGo. You can use Gab. You know, people yeah. Uh, yeah. Gab is not at risk of being shut down. It just doesn't have as many users as Twitter. I also think. I'd much rather private failure than public failure. If if we have a world in which something like the Holly proposal passes, you're just a really bad bureaucratic decision away from the internet as we know it being really hamstrung uh, and ruined. And I'd much rather have the environment we have at the moment, which is YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Airbnb, Tinder, all these companies come up with their own content moderation policies. And some are better than others. None of them are going to get it perfect, uh, but they all have an incentive to try 
uh, to do the best they can for the most number of users. Uh, and that, that situation and system is better, especially in a system where competition is possible. Now I'd like to bring on Jennifer Huddleston. She and Brent Skorup are from the Mercatus Center, and they just wrote a paper recently about how Section 230 is evolutionary rather than revolutionary, how courts were already slowly making their way towards a system like what Section 230 provided, but it was taking time to get there and time and, and money and delayed development that we were, we were able to forego because of Section 230. And this kind of contradicts some of what's coming out of uh, congressional hearings right now. Could you explain that for our audience? Certainly. So one of the things critics on both the left and the right often criticize Section 234 is that it's this kind of idea of this, it's this deviation, it's this huge gift to the tech company. And what my paper with Brent Scorch shows is that actually it wasn't so much a, a deviation or a gift as much as it was an acceleration of trends away from strict liability for publishers that had begun in the 1930s. So a good 60 years before Section 230 and the internet were even a conversation. Things that we saw with earlier kind of mass media technologies like the radio and wire services developing via things like wire service defense and conduit liability. So you're like the Associated Press or some wire service and you're sending a, a news story, you're relaying along the wires, should you be held liable for the content of, of what you're just transmitting? Is that the kind of idea? Well, certainly looking at like radio and if a host said something defamatory on the radio and different other forms of media, what should be done? And again, just like with Internet platforms, you certainly could say go after the individual, but can you go after the, the conduit that is carrying that information? Hmm. And you're saying that even in these other media forms, there was some kind of protection uh, for the for the, the platforms or the conduits that they couldn't be sued successfully in court. Right. So we had started to see an erosion of strict liability of, of just saying that carrying these ty this type of information was defamation per se into a much more nuanced look. We also see this with things like libraries and that might have been found to have a book that was, contained some material and looking at things like libraries and newsstands and, and how much responsibility could you be reasonably expected to have over everything that was contained there? Mm. So you don't want someone to you know, be able to sue the library because they carried a book that they just happened to not approve of. So a lot of this involved different kinds of, of questionable material or even defamatory material and, and the question of kind of how much responsibility, given that something like defamation is not always clear cut in in a lot of cases. There's this evolving kind of legal defense going on for radio, uh, print, print matter, television. Take us up to the 1990s. So it's the early days of the internet. How do we see that evolving into the digital age? Right. So we have two very different, two courts come to two very different conclusions. In one case, the court says that the internet intermediary is not liable. And in the other case, Prodigy, uh, they say that they are. And out of this kind of diversion came Section 230, where there was this concern about could the courts potentially go down the wrong path. And that's part of the interesting phenomena with Section 230 is while it does resemble this kind of shift away from common law, or the shift, let me start over. While it does resemble 
this kind of continuation of what was evolving at common law, it did accelerate it at a really important time that allowed the internet to really flourish with all sorts of user-generated content. A lot of times when we talk about Section 230, we think of things like social media sites, search engines, or even in the earlier days, things like online message boards. But it also impacts a lot of other areas of the internet that rely on user-generated content. So things like sharing economy platforms and review services also have, have been allowed to really flourish under Section 230, whereas if it had continued to evolve at common law, there would have been this concern about, you know, what do we do in those cases where the courts may deviate um, from what was going on traditionally? So we might have still ended up at a point where we've eroded strict liability for conduits or platforms, but it would have taken many more years, a lot of frivolous lawsuits, a lot of just, you know, delayed development, I suppose. Absolutely. Oh, interesting. Well, Jennifer, thank you for your time, and uh, we'll put a link to the to uh, your paper and Brent's paper in the uh, in the show notes. Um, and for our listeners, uh, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Test Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.